Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, everyone. Charles Marshall here on the West Coast Foreclosure Show. It is Thursday, and it's always a Thursday when we do this show. It's Thursday, May 17th, 2018. And I have my good companion, Bill Padalo, on with me, as we often are able to make arrangements to uh, do this show together. And we're going to be discussing indemnification and mortgages, how it matters, why it matters. And even though it's presented as kind of a hypothetical, it has very real-world consequences, we think. And that might be an area that will play out in the coming months and years Meanwhile, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And the show is made possible because of generous donations from listeners like you. Thank you. Any amount you're able to donate is appreciated, and you can donate directly to the show, to the blog of Neil's, by selecting the Donate button on on Neil's blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now, before we get into the indemnification discussion today, it's important to uh, discuss a matter that we have raised in a previous show. This was a, a while ago now. Uh, What I'm alluding to is the second district appellate court of the 13 circuits. This is the second uh, district appellate court. Uh, it's, It's actually a state matter back in Illinois. And this is a case that was affirmed in part and reversed in part And the contact attorney for this is Daniel Quadra. Uh, His last name, K-H-W-A-J-A. And again, this is a case out of a second district appellate court. Uh, The issue here related to standing of the bank, and that was all relative to what was being treated 
as a HUD loan. And essentially the ruling has been turned on its head and there is still going to be an opportunity to get this case readdressed, which Dan is working on as we speak. And he would certainly appreciate input and support. Uh, You can reach him uh, among other places through his website. His website is at www.ilforeclosurelawyer.com. So that's www.il, obviously standing for Illinois, foreclosurelawyer.com. Now, getting to this issue of the indemnification, Bill's going to jump right in here, and he's going to talk about how this whole notion that, well, when securitized mortgage trust engage in all these assignments. Uh, one, one could call them squirrely. One could call them uh, misbegotten. One, one should call them illegal in some cases. They're proving that out. It's a difficult matter, as the listeners to this show well know. Nevertheless, uh, this is another arena and another area that I think needs more specific and detailed attention. And as always, Bill is able to bring fine analysis to these types of issues. So, Bill, tell our listeners about what what this is uh, what this is involving, and sure. kind of how there's a there's a case where indemnification is treated. I think correctly is inadequate in the case you're going to be talking about. And what's really be happening here in the mortgage market is a surety bond as happened there in that case. But you, you go ahead and uh, fill the listeners in now. Sure. Well, thanks Charles. Um, I I thought this would be kind of an interesting subject. Uh, it came up upon my radar yesterday during an investigation and um I was reviewing a chain of title on a loan that uh, was a refinanced loan. So it wasn't even the subject loan of the litigation, but I was uh, asked to delve into, you know, what happened to the payoff of the previous loan before that. And what I discovered, as I have in many, many cases, when I've gone back uh, to review uh, the entire chain, you know, most most of the investigations I do, they center around the subject loan that's in foreclosure where the litigation is uh, taking place. But in in the vast majority of cases, whether you're in foreclosure or not, uh, if you took out any loans during the the run up to the crash in the 2000s, and many people were uh, taking out loans repeatedly every couple of years. They were refinancing, taking out more, and uh, they would constantly roll in and out of these loans. Well, what really happened to some of those loans prior to? And I just, uh, my head just kind of, you know, spun around yesterday when I was looking at a, a reconveyance on this California property, and I just had to laugh because the 
party that was issuing the reconveyance was MERS as trustee. God, that was that was a first for me, if you can believe it, after all these years, to see MERS uh, calling itself the trustee on the deed of trust and having the authority as the trustee to reconvey the property. Well, right away, um, as I look into that, um, all kinds of red flags went up and all kinds of fraudulent stuff started jumping out at me. And I thought, you know, uh, we we really have to have a discussion about this on the show and talk about uh, this. Really, there's there's kind of two contexts to, to talk about this indemnification issue, one being in the foreclosure uh, context, and then also I, I thought it would be important to kind of talk about uh, this indemnification issue for those who currently are not having any issues uh, regarding a default or whatnot, but they may have concerns or they may have been uh, become privy to all these issues that are going on. And if they and is it worth really going back and looking at your overall title, even if you're not in a default situation? Which um, I'm going to ask you a couple questions in a moment. But yes, I think it's very important now, based on these egregious fraudulent conveyances and satisfactions being recorded, that I think. Um, people really not all people need to stand up now and start to look back at the the, the prior loans and their title history but um, the term of indemnification I hear that a lot of times when I travel around or I'm testifying in cases and I'm in the courtroom one of the most common things that I've heard judges say uh, during the proceedings and as I mentioned this before on past programs is they say well, you know what? I I don't see anybody else in this courtroom trying, you know, sitting here trying to come forward and enforce this thing. So, you're trying to tell me that this loan could uh, that that the proper party isn't in the courtroom today, that it could be somebody else. Well, you know, again, I don't see anybody else standing here today trying to enforce it. How do you explain that? Um, and well, my typical response is, and that's because the investors in many of these loans are getting advanced their payments each and every month to the point where they don't have any reason to question or challenge uh, there being a default because they have no knowledge that there's any sort of a default because, again, uh, they're getting advanced the payments each and every month and uh, they have no grounds or reason or alarms to to stand up and come after the homeowners or to raise a, uh, a stink. So that's that's my kind of answer to that question in a, in a short version. But um, But the bank attorneys usually always say, well, Your Honor, we'll just indemnify. You know, we'll just just, you know, give us our judgment and let's be on our way. And uh, if anybody ever comes back on the note or whatever against this homeowner, you know, we'll just simply indemnify. And it seems to be a real uh, easy out and a sort of quick uh, fix to to the judge kind of nodding their heads, usually saying, oh, okay, uh, you're going to indemnify. But is there really ever a formal indemnification that occurs? And the other question I have is, Look, these parties who are offering to indemnify, what real protections do they have? If many of these entities that were involved in the, you know, leading up to the crash in 08, I mean, many of them don't even exist anymore. They're not even around. How are their assurances that uh, years down the road, if someone does come back against the borrower on title, whatever, that these folks have, they're not bankrupt or anything? So I started delving into the surety bond issue and whatnot, and that's when I kind of stumbled upon this um, California appeals uh, decision. It's an old case, 1979. Uh, I sent over to you. It's uh, Huckle versus 
Montranga, uh, M-A-T-R-A-N-G-A, and uh, it's a case that uh, doesn't have a lot of the buzzwords that we deal with in foreclosure land in the last 10 years, but it, it talks a little bit about reconveyances on a loan and what has to happen. Do the notes have to be returned? Do the, does the party who pays off these obligations, you know, what are their rights? Um, you know, if the note's been destroyed or lost, who has to prove uh, uh, that they held that lost note and who's going to indemnify so on and so forth and the court's analysis was was very interesting because um, they talk about the same issues that I just described they're talking about um, what are the real protections and just a straight indemnity or saying you're going to indemnify really isn't worth a hill of beans um, you really have to uh, get involved with a special surety bond of some sort to offer some uh, good protections here to um, the party to protect them from anyone coming back in the future claiming any, uh, you know, actions on, on the debt or the note or something of that nature if they were to come forth. And so it was real interesting to hear that analysis. And so I started delving into a little bit, and again, I uh, surety bonds and all that thing is not my realm of expertise <laughs> or anything of, of that nature, but I started looking into it, and some of the things I'm hearing and reading uh, suggest that uh, the underwriters who issue those bonds, they want a lot of information, and they're going to want to look at the books and records of the party and the, of the principal who's buying this policy and so on and so forth to ensure that um, they're they're not in, uh, getting into, stepping into a can of worms here. Well, so uh, that's why I kind of posed the question yesterday to you and uh, Neil a little bit of, okay, what is your experience here with these surety bonds? Have you actually seen a lot of these uh, surety bonds actually being issued to protect people in foreclosure or whatnot? So that was one of my first questions. And then I started to ask you guys the questions. listen, is it worth it for people to uh, go back and start investigating some of the title issues, these fraudulent conveyances, satisfactions that exist in their title, and do they have any sort of recourse if they do discover now that there is some fraudulent documents recorded? Do they have um, recourse for claims such as slander of title or whatever it might be? Um, and is it worthwhile? And of course, you know, it's I know that if people are uh, going through life and their, their blinders are on and they have no reason to stir a pot anywhere, who wants to invite litigation? Absolutely nobody wants to get involved in that fight. But I think there's also a huge risk if you're going to bury your head in the sand and pretend that there's no problems that could potentially come back to bite you if you were a participant in taking out loans during this time period. I think everybody is at risk. And so uh, before I let you comment on this, I won't take up too much uh, of the segment here, Charles, but my opinion after all the research and things that I've done is I believe that there's millions of these faulty, defective, and fraudulent satisfactions and reconveyances uh, filed in the title records all across the country. You know, I have stacks of them uh, on, on my desk and in my files that I've looked at, and uh, they're issued by fake beneficiaries, fake trustees, um, and when I start to just scratch the surface of these things, I can see that uh, in data systems that these things were securitized and uh, shot out all over the planet. And so when I see 
Um, and one of the examples I sent you guys yesterday, it was interesting, is I've got uh, a satisfaction from MERS for Greenpoint, um, where Greenpoint claims that they're the beneficiary and they're issuing the satisfaction. However, the uh, letter sent to the client with a note comes from Morgan Stanley and says, here, I'm, I'm sending you back your original note in this transaction Mark paid in full. And, of course, you know, the note doesn't have any endorsements. It doesn't have any allonges on it or whatnot. And so I, I kind of run that uh, through my system, and lo and behold, there's there's the securitized trust where this still exists. Okay, so uh, somebody's lying. They can't have it both ways. Either the original originator sold it into the securitization machine to the trust, and in that case, if that's what they did and disclosed to the investors, then there's no way that they just returned that original note mark paid in full it's not the original it can't be um or the reverse uh has happened where what we have said all along the notes were never transferred or possessed by the trust or endorsed over to the custodians of the trust you know it, it's it, it's one or the other but it can't be both so um so then again going back to are we at risk as a as a whole and uh, are these past loans still alive and active in the derivatives market if they've never had a true legal con reconveyance? If they're fraudulent reconveyances, um, the evidence is clearly mounting that uh, uh, these past loans still are alive and kicking in the derivatives markets. And therefore, I think everyone needs to look into it. So I'll let you answer some of those questions, Charles, and uh, uh, tell me what your thoughts are. Oh, sure. I appreciate your analysis as always, Bill. Uh, on this distinction between indemnification and the surety bond, uh, kind of you could even call it a judicial alternative to indemnification. I mean, indemnification is a big word, and I know we have sophisticated listeners, so I won't belabor definitions other, other than to put it out um, – you know, as clearly as possible, just in case uh, there's some listeners who aren't fully familiar with the term. But basically, when you indemnify somebody, you're saying you'll take on their legal obligation. You actually see indemnifications not infrequently in contract law because, of, of course, a lot of contracts are made at the margins, meaning one party and sometimes both are only marginally interested in doing the contract and where particularly one party is very interested and the other party is marginally interested. Sometimes the marginally interested party will say, look, if you indemnify me, then yeah, we can do this contract. Uh, maybe one party to the contract is, is providing a part of a service. There's a service being provided. And then there's somebody on the other side paying money. So the service provider who has sort of a sub-service provider, provider might, might indemnify the, uh, the person upstream from them, or the person who's providing the service may need the sub-servicer's uh, skill set so badly and the, the skill set may be so rare that they're willing to indemnify that subservicer from any legal mishaps to the uh, legal relationship, from the agreement itself, from performance, from failure to pay, whatever the issues are. 
when you indemnify, you're basically telling the party you indemnify that you'll cover their legal costs, you'll take the consequence of whatever happens legally. So it is kind of glib when, uh, whether it's mortgage servicers, whether it's the institutional trusts themselves when they're in litigation, as they will represent sometimes, either formally or informally, that, yeah, they'll, they'll step, in to, step in to indemnify the borrower if it comes down to it. Well, that's often a, a, a kind of paper, paper tiger representation in that nobody really holds them to account, the judge or the borrower for that matter, to actually uh, coordinate on and then sign a full-blown indemnification agreement. Because the way indemnification works, typically without it being in writing, it's going to be very hard to enforce. And it is a somewhat detailed legal concept. So when you see it in written agreements, the language is fairly clear and there are usually specifics about what exactly is being indemnified. And the surety bond issue is where a court says, look, you know, the party who's being held to present the bond, they're basically being told by the court, look, you can maintain your legal action or you can, you know, even in a criminal law context, you'll see bonds. Everybody's familiar with that. A bond is basically committing yourself to the court and you're saying, look, I'm putting up this money and it might be 10% of the total amount owed that, of the total amount at risk, I should say that you actually have to put up. But regardless, when you do a surety bond, when you do any kind of similar bond before court, you're guaranteeing to the court, almost like an escrow, that that money will essentially default. And that can happen if you lose your case. That can happen in a criminal context if you fail to make appearances in court, uh, fail to uh, make yourself available for... uh, for incarceration after a uh, criminal judgment. So you see this in a number of contexts, but here you would see it if a judge demanded that uh, as a condition in, in, in the type of case that Bill is describing, that to confirm there aren't title issues, to confirm that whatever securitized trust assignments are in the recorded record to confirm the legitimacy, to confirm and affirm the validity. Judges could hold parties that are doing the affirmations to a surety bond requirement. The problem, as is so often the case, is legal standard, because the legal standard here, when you require a surety bond, you're essentially saying that the party doing the bond obligation, in other words, they're the one putting up the money for the bond, that their legal position, it's not that their legal position is marginal, but their legal position may or may not prevail. So because it may or may not prevail, they're held to put up a bond so that the other side is compensated should should the other side uh, lose 
in a contest, in a legal contest, where the party putting up the bond is said to hold the lesser position. The, the party putting up the bond is said to hold a less legally defensible position. It doesn't mean that it's not one uh, presented with merit. It doesn't mean that it's not one that won't prevail on the merits in certain cases. Uh, but I, I I can tell you just on the on the basis of how surety bonds work that they're not going to be required in a lot of court courts against securitized trust or their servicers because the interpretation will be, well, look, these borrowers, you know, the court would be in effect telling the borrower, look, borrower, you're, you're, you're the one with the marginal case here. And notwithstanding your evidence, notwithstanding your presentation, uh, the institutional trust people, we're not going to tax them with a bond because we're not convinced that you borrowers should prevail in this case. And the the legal kind of um, assessment of all this is a bit more complicated, but a lot of it does come down to that. If you can present a case in court where you have the judge seeing that you should prevail on the merits, or if it goes to a fact finder, meaning a bench trial with a judge or a jury, that you have a good prospect of prevailing on the on the merits, then yes, a judge could issue a surety bond requirement there. Um, what are, What are your thoughts, Bill? Well, yeah, I mean, I think in many of these cases, uh, the borrower should be able to prevail on the merits. I mean, I have a case right now, and there are like many others where. Uh, it's a it's a typical. They can't explain the custodial history of the note. They have multiple versions of the note. Some with endorsements, some with aren't. They don't have any witness who can attest to any personal knowledge of anything regarding why there are various versions of the note. And again, uh, where the note was prior to 2014, for example, on a loan that was in an 05 securitization transaction. But anyway. Those facts are almost universal in every case. So if you're telling the judge, if the judge is still going to rule against the homeowners like they do most often and just shove this stuff under the rug, you say, listen, the evidence is very clear. They don't know where the original note is. The evidence shows that it's likely destroyed. They can't explain why there's multiple versions uh, of, of any of these notes or the authenticity of which one's original. I mean, for that matter, I think uh, at a minimum, you should require them to, you know, put up a surety bond. So with the scenario you're talking about, uh, I agree with you. I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And if you can get a judge to see a case with the kind of facts you're talking about and you're able to present that evidentiary train, whether it's through discovery, whether it's through written uh, discovery responses or analysis, uh, potentially a deposition, even if it's just at an evidentiary hearing, uh, which could be a motion for summary judgment, or like we sometimes see in bankruptcy practice, where you can have evidentiary hearings, which are essentially many trials, uh, with or without discovery, you're able to expose these kinds of inconsistencies. So uh, I think being able to establish 
th that kind of uh, inconsistent record on the part of, of the servicer and the institutional trust and how they really don't have bona fides on the note or they have all kinds of inconsistencies, then I, I absolutely agree with you. That's a place where the, the problem of evidence on their side should be held against them by the court. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, Bill? We're coming up to uh, the end of our time here on this show today. Well, yeah, and I just uh, wanted to hear your answer to, is it worthwhile for people to uh, to go back and investigate these prior loans, even if they're not in a state of default? And Because uh, I think um, I think it's really important yeah, to, I mean, to I get to speak to that really, really quickly. I would say, and, and I think we'll take this up in a future show, um, but, yeah, there are going to be circumstances, and I'm making a note for us to, to address this in a future show. And thank you again, Bill, for uh, being here today. And Neil will be back next week. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show. For free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.